Welcome to the IAB UK podcast. Hello and welcome to the IAB UK podcast. From the IAB, I'm James Chandler and this week's episode has been recorded as part of our first ever e-commerce week. The first of four emerged and emerging specialism weeks, also covering connected TV, gaming and audio that will run throughout 2021. And all brought to you by our official e-commerce week partners, TikTok. And for this special episode, I sit down with Verizon Media's UK Head of Strategy, Monica Majunda, to talk about the phenomenal growth of e-com in the last 12 months, what buy now, pay later means to Gen Z, and how 2020 was the second coming for QR codes. We also meander our way around 5G, digital doubles, and the year of the hologram. But I started by asking Monica to talk about her background agency side. So um, I'm currently head of strategy at Verizon Media UK. And within my team, we actually have both comm strategists and creative strategists. So my background is comm strategy. Um, sorry, media way back when worked on the PNG team wow. at um, Starcom Media Vest. Yep, mm. that gave me such good grounding in terms of understanding, you know, business objectives, but also tackling each question from a strategic perspective. Mm. Um, then moved to PhD, where I think I got a really solid grounding in just strategic thinking, and then moved to what was then MediaVest, then became Spark, yeah. um, working on Heineken Group, which was amazing, but nice. also got to work on Heineken Group alongside Royal London, so I had a mixture of finance, and um, and then went back to FMCG, working on Bell Group, so gave me a broad spectrum, mm. and there was where I really honed my craft of you know, what does comm strategy mean? How do we actually sit on par with creative agencies Mm. in terms of helping to better understand audiences? What are the tensions? How can we resolve that both creatively and from a storytelling perspective, but also through media and when and where we speak to them and the kinds of activities we engage with. Um, So when the Verizon discussion started, what was really fascinating about that was this idea of very much bringing that lens of strategic thinking to Mm. everything Verizon Media was working on with agencies and clients directly and making sure we were speaking client's language and weren't thinking further up the funnel, right? So what does that mean in terms of, you know, this business challenge? How can we answer it? But understand what they're wanting and not just go down straight into activation detail, but also the fact that, you know, we sit on this amazing wealth of data, all GDPR compliant. But um, from there, you get a really un, like, interesting understanding of what consumers are doing and how they behave in real time, right? And actually, what are we seeing versus just intent, right? What are they actually buying? What's actually in their basket? What are they actually signing up for versus what they're searching for? So you can marry that all together because we have search data, we have logged in user data, yeah. we have email data and receipts. Um, so that means that we've been able to really help agencies with their client conversations you know work with strategists clients directly just to give them a better view of what's happening in their category and how different consumers are engaging with them what's the biggest difference do you think from going agency side to um working for i guess you're you're just like a publisher of publishers at verizon media you're a media Mm. all of these different uh brands that sit inside it what's the sort of the biggest difference that you've noticed uh two things that immediately come to mind. One is just the breadth of sectors and clients you mm. work with. That's very different from agency side where everyone's assigned a patch yep. to an extent. 
the pace. Uh, you know, uh, we would have the luxury <laughs> of working on a brief for, say, three weeks, yeah. and that's not the case. So yeah. you do have to rely on your instinct and gut and experience a bit more, mm. right? Which is interesting because you work for so many years as a strategist to make sure everything you work on is so solidly grounded in data that you're finding. And not that we don't do that, but I also have to encourage my team to say, we think mm. this is the direction we want to go in. And you know what? Uh, our hunch is backed up by X, Y, Z. And as a you know, the fact that you're a consumer. So let's go with that. So we just have to work on things much more quickly. We have 24 hour turnaround times for wow. three weeks. The luxury of 24 hours, eh? Um, <laughs> look, we want to talk, um, we want to talk e-com. And I think uh, of all the various specialisms, specialisms that the IB is going to cover this year, the, the most anticipated, the most talked about uh, is e-com simply because of what's happened in the last year uh, during the pandemic and, yeah. and, and under lockdown. I mean, some, some, some things are maybe obvious and we've all seen the charts that say, you know, here was a plan that an advertiser or a business or a platform have for the next six years and they ended up doing it in three months. But mm. what factors do you think have been at play in the last year and, and, and why do you think that the pace of e-com specifically has been so accelerated. You know, there was, there's nothing like having your arm twisted to make you suddenly do things <laughs> that you thought, do I need to do this? Yeah. So suddenly all physical football was stopped, mm -hmm. right? And the only way to be able to continue that was to migrate online. And actually this, you know, that classic adage of, um, you know, fail fast, but you'll yeah. learn so quickly from mm. that. So it was like, let's just try it. What will happen there? And obviously, we know that consumers are flocking online, especially the uh, the older ones, right? I mean, we went from, you know, 30% going and shopping online weekly to about 60% of us shopping mm. weekly. Um, you know, and it wasn't just online groceries. You suddenly, if you needed, um, you know, DIY yeah, products, yeah, right? Yeah. Paint. <laughs> and you couldn't just go down yeah. to B&Q. You had to, to buy it. Um, and I think also the fact that supply chains were halted. So even mm. if you could go to a physical store, you can get what you wanted. You couldn't actually always rely on the big players. So let's look at local, yeah. um, you know, and obviously everything became a touch point for e-commerce. Social became much more mm. of a touch point for e-commerce than before, um, as much as the traditional online spaces. But then obviously you had those companies like Square, for instance, that um, mm. enabled local players to suddenly uh, be able to have an online shop front. Um, and obviously the, the, the big thing was seeing so many different uh, companies and stores pivot very quickly. Yeah. You know, Lola's Cupcakes went from just selling cupcakes to grocery boxes. Yeah, yeah. You would have never thought of getting tomatoes from Lola's, but yeah, yeah. I remember ordering that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it was the ability for companies to pivot quickly, but consumers also naturally pivoting. And so that just created the symbiosis of we have to move along to, and, to, to get what we need. And this point on, on locals, such mm. a prevalent one, I think, because you know, pr probably one of the biggest casualties, recent casualties of the high street is something like Arcadia Group and, and Topshop, which now mm. becomes a, an entirely online entity under uh, ASOS. Remains to be seen whether the, the flagship will remain open. But um, it, it, in a weird way, maybe it's, a, it, it's both sides of the coin, isn't it? In a weird way, as you say, local businesses have been supported, perhaps in a way that we valued them more, more than ever because we weren't really going anywhere else. But um, pretty tough at the same time. I mean, they're small usually, so that they're agile. Uh, mm. But the uh, perhaps the big marketplaces, online marketplaces of the world as well, as you say. I mean, if I can get some paint delivered the same day, 
that kind of works for me. I don't care where I get it from. So what's your take on how local has fared? So from a community perspective and social welfare perspective, I feel like there's been a real awareness that's grown about how important local shops are mm. to contributing to the community um, and helping you feel like you're not always um, relying on those big players that often are faceless or personality-less. Mm. Um, I think what's really interesting, though, is that interplay between the physical experience of your local and then transferring that to the online experience. So there is the most adorable stationery shop down the road for me called Marby and Elm, which is very much bricks and mortar. They have physical printing presses for all their stationery, but they then quickly pivoted online so you can click and collect, order online, we'll deliver it to you. So that then shows how there is a life for a local beyond just the physical yeah, store yeah. if you're able to marry the yeah. two. And uh, like any good strategist, um, you sort of think about, you know, culture and, and behaviours. Um, lockdown behaviours has obsessed us on the podcast, um, mm. p- particularly, I-, I guess, trying to weigh up which of those new lockdown behaviours, you know, I think about FaceTiming mums and dads and, and grandparents, which we never did before, we used to pick up the phone to them, um, and contactless payments, things like that. The, the bet is, which of those new behaviours are just going to be the new normal but but where when we get back to something that looks like it was in 2019 where are we going to shed those new behaviors and go back to sort of you know an, an old normal I don't see lots of people walking around with you know pockets full of cash anymore but I wonder I'd love to get your take on you know what are those new things that we've just started doing because we had to that you think are going to stick uh, far beyond 2021 so um there are a couple of things so what's really interesting is as you said um the rise of the QR code mm. and that uh, ubiquity, which we were starting, we were laughing at before, right? Back in 2019, <laughs> like, oh, I remember the QR code and it seemed to do really well in Asia. It just didn't gain traction mm. here, right? And we always talked about the consumer journey and dropping off and we wanted to make sure we minimize that, make it as seamless as possible. But obviously now all phones have that technology yeah. integrated. So you don't have to have a third party app. Um, but the biggest thing was having NHS track and trace where suddenly old and young alike yeah. are scanning or in that kind of those halcyon days. Do you remember back when we could actually go to restaurants in <laughs> August, September? <laughs> but every restaurant you went to also had a, a QR code for the yeah. menu, Yeah. right? So suddenly you're like, oh, it's not just for me to check in. It's for me to get my information mm. and maybe to place my order. Or actually I can whip out my phone and scan it to have my loyalty card. I don't have to touch anything. Mm. And I think that's going to stay because it benefits both consumers and retailers, right? Yeah. So from a consumer perspective, it's touchless, it's contactless. From a, a retailer perspective, you can have real-time updates without yeah. having to go through the production timelines of print out a new menu, print out yeah. a new poster, etc. You can update and have that information delivered the same day. I, I, I spent so much of my career, I worked in mobile and trying mm. to convince people not to you know stick a qr code on the back of a lorry on a motorway and then have it you know go to your desktop site when it's you know one of those old things and it's mm-hmm. all of those none of those rules have changed none of the stuff you talked about has has changed at all it, it's just simply behavior and mm-hmm. suddenly we've had this need to do it rather than it's just a nice to have in the middle of a glossy print ad uh, which is incredible. I don't, uh, you know, and the wine list can change dynamically. I don't want to pick up this other thing. It's sort of incredible, isn't it? It's just that one behavioural shift, which is which has kind of got us there. Um, yeah. uh, s- something else as well, uh, I guess, is, is immediacy. The idea that mm-hmm. um, 
you know, we don't have to go somewhere and get something, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we need to wait for it. And obviously, some of the big marketplaces have been great at that. Perhaps local have too around click and collect and around particularly around food and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think we've become uh, the type of consumer now that the expectation has just gone up a few notches in the last year of, of when we want stuff and, and when we can get it? I think there's been a bit of a reset regarding that, right? So instant gratification was that norm prior mm. to 2020 across everything. I don't want to wait in line to get into a restaurant. I don't want to have to wait more than 24 hours to get my delivery. Um, you know, I don't want to wait an extra 10 milliseconds for the page to load, right? <laughs> across the board. Yeah. And suddenly you can't get what you want right away, even if you go into a physical store, right? So stock supplies were, mm. were completely disrupted. Um, or you knew that Royal Mail, you know, trying their hardest, but couldn't necessarily guarantee yeah. things would arrive in 24 or 48 hours. So it's meant a reset um, across the board. And I think that ties into another aspect that we've explored around what does it mean to experience serendipity or spontaneity in lockdown? Mm. Because you know, think about those days of walking up to the water cooler and bumping into a colleague to have yeah. a chat. Yeah. Or someone said, hey, we're going out for drinks tonight. Come join us. I have a spare ticket. Do you want to come join us for this gig? <laughs> and we're trying to replicate those experiences. But ironically, you need tech and time for that mm. to happen. So you need to schedule the Zoom call and send the link. You need to set up the platform in order to have a live event that feels you know, spontaneous. Yeah. Um, so that has also meant that the way we experience serendipity and that joy you'd get from instant gratification has been altered. I think to your previous point before, that's one element that will not be as prevalent in the future. I think we'll take what we like. We will take the fact that you can have almost a digital double of a live event. Mm -hmm. You could be there in person or you could be viewing because we have the tech, everyone knows how to use it and it feels seamless. Um, the other aspect is, um, strange enough travel where you know i used to joke before about travel roulette do you remember before like 9 11 when you could rock up to a gate you know mm. whether or not you had a ticket mm. maybe say hey can i buy a ticket and, and get on the plane yeah. couldn't do that now but we're doing uh, something very similar where a lot of people we saw were booking holidays just a week in advance especially in august um, we saw the highest number of individuals booking a week in advance wow. the booking window has shrunk from a little over three months so 102 days down to 40 days wow. in what we've seen in our data and as you know the guidelines are ever changing and the travel mm. corridors continue to change even as we open up even though we're allowed to travel, we might be worried about going to another country because of a flare-up or vaccination rates are low. I think that's going to continue for at least another year or two as we, you know, as, as the world kind of normalizes post-pandemic. How do you think it will relate to, I, I love the example of the, from the data that you've seen around people uh, you know, planning holidays and being a, a bit mm-hmm. more spontaneous with it. What do you think happens to that sort of middle bit of that very traditional funnel that we all get educated mm-hmm. on, that big consideration bit? Because that mixed in with the idea that, uh, you know, this this new sort of sense of immediacy, you know, mm-hmm. con- consideration isn't, I guess, what it used to be. I guess e-com in a weird way has almost shortcutted the fact that I can see it, I then don't need to, I can just get, get these things. I'd love to get your take from a, a strategist point of view. I think this is where priming is so important Mm. across the board for all brands. So this is where 
consideration and affinity driving and awareness driving all kind of sit more closely together. You need to be a present brand. So let's say for travel, you need to help people dream ahead of the fact that they even thought of going on holiday or know when they can go on holiday. And that was always there, but you didn't necessarily activate it as much until you got into those key kind of season periods or planning season periods. But now um, you need to be present so that when someone's ready to act, you know, you were there through that point mm. and can enable them to realize that. And that's the case for even things like just maybe more traditional shopping, i.e. for clothes or home accessories, etc. I think the modern version of consideration, if you think about e-commerce, is actually what sits in your wish list or sits yeah. in your basket yeah, yeah. for seven days. Because yeah. that truly shows you're considering. Yeah. And that truly shows that you're either weighing up pros and cons or debating the price or shopping around for offers yeah. so, uh, or thinking, do I really want to splurge on this? When's payday? <laughs> so I think that then becomes interesting. And then you have data signals to help you understand that. Whereas before you might not know if someone's considering as much. And yeah, yeah. I love, I love that. I love how the, the wish list or the basket is the new consideration set. We had, um, we had the brilliant piece of field on actually just mm. at the start of lockdown, who was making the case that, uh, and this was at the very start of the pandemic, that, brands should absolutely this is the, the last thing they should be doing right now is start pulling you know brand mm. spend basically and getting very short term about it and just trying to drive sales you know even if you are an airline and people can't fly anywhere for six months at some point they will and at some point to your point around priming they're going to need a brand to cling to and if there's a, a brand that still continued to talk to them and tell them relevant stories and helping them dream as you say um, you kind of understand the importance. Um, what did you see happen in those sort of weird and wobbly Q2, Q3 months when money just started coming out and everyone panicked and thought we we're going to be in this it, this huge recession? Was was there anything from you that was sort of thinking, look, you, you kind of need to stay in here. You need to keep telling these stories. Yeah, because I think the pattern we saw in terms of consumer shopping was that, one, there was always pent-up demand building in those periods of lockdown. Mm. Because as soon as we were out of physical lockdown, spending went up across discretionary spend. And even though we know we're heading to recession, we know that in June, sales were up 13%, right? Mm. Retail sales. Even in October, sales were up 3% because people were eager to either kind of replicate like oh I can actually think about the dress that people will see whereas what's the point of getting a dress from me sitting in my flat and no one will see it um or um you know going to salons going to events all of that we saw that people were spending as soon as we're out of lockdown and then it recedes again as soon as we're in lockdown so I think there's gonna be a lot of pent-up demand so from a brand perspective you're right I think there was a sense of let us keep this money and hold on to it from people are back but that also adds to the clutter that people would be experiencing. So there is a real benefit to being live in that vacuum period or that void of activity out in the outside world because people have more time, they're more receptive, might be thinking about and dreaming about when they're back out in the world. Mm. Um, and there's a lot you could do to build that affinity with that consumer then. T- tell me about, I mean, another area for focus we were talking before was was this idea of the the kind of the buy now, pay later, which particularly when you think about Gen Z is massively appealing. I mean, there's there's some huge businesses around. Tell us about the dynamics of that and how that's panned out in the last year. Yeah, so we've been noticing for the last few years that, um, you know, we started watching the likes of Klarna or even PayPal Credit where, okay, they have a, lot, a few more retailers on board. You know, it was, say, your ASOSs of the world, but then also bigger ticket items like sofas from Swoon. But actually, as more and more retailers were 
bringing that on board, um, we could see that there were a lot of other categories that suddenly people were realizing, oh, I could actually buy this item and either pay for it after 30 days or I can pay for it in installments. Hmm. And we've just seen the exponential rise of those kind of services um, since the pandemic. I mean, actually Black Friday, you know, when we look at Black Friday 2020 versus 2019, we saw a massive exponential spike in um, the use of those services. We think it's going to continue in Christmas as well. Mm. So essentially, it, it de-risks the purchase, right? Um, either by showing, oh, it's equivalent to three payments, equivalent to a coffee, yeah, yeah. or you know, it is something where you can have the product in hand, try it, it doesn't work, send it back, and it doesn't affect your wallet. So yeah. that's actually an interesting way of repositioning instant gratification mm. in the online world as well. The returns thing's fascinating, isn't it? Because there was... Mm. I was reading a bunch of stuff about people who were saying, you know, spending, you know, 300 quid a month on on clothes. And ultimately, they're, they're always in this cycle of, you know, intending mm-hmm. to return a lot of it. But you're then sort of waiting for the money to come back. And you're right, it completely, completely de-risks it. Yeah, and there's a lot that brands um, can learn from that, like whether or not you actually use the payment services. But it's thinking about, well, how do I de-risk it? Or, you know, using behavioral science, mm. uh, you know, change the way that someone is considering that purchase, break it down and be able to compare it to something else that they would normally pay for, wouldn't think twice about. Or, you know, this this idea of getting product in hand, you know, I haven't, I've been meaning to research, what are the stats of people actually returning once yeah. you have that product in yeah. hand? Um. Uh, earlier this year earlier this year earlier last year we had sam field from riot on mm. who was talking about i mean you mentioned digital double which was interesting he talked about digital twins and this sort of fascinating idea that when we come out of it uh, we're not just going to go either virtual event or go all in on physical we'll have these sort of amazing mishmash hybrids uh, mm. in there as well but thinking about something like immersive tech um ar vr uh, m- mixed reality what kind of role if it's not playing a huge one at the moment, do you think that's um, uh, that's going to play uh, as we start to have these these mixed experience and digital things become more uh, real and real things, I guess, become uh, a bit more digital? I think what's really interesting is if we start thinking about immersive as a mechanism rather than the end goal, um, it's actually more pervasive than we think, right? Because of think about the number of AR filters we use in mm. social, right? Or the number of AR-enabled ads, which enable, to, enable you to either place a sofa in your room or try on that piece of jewelry, yeah. try on makeup. We're all familiar with that. Um, think about, um, you know, the number of events where we've been or we've watched where suddenly there's a hologram or uh, a digital entity, a digital performer that's been enhanced. I think across the board, immersive will be essentially that new normal mm. whether or not we return to fully um art experiences of before because we're used to it extends the experience and no longer do the production elements require it to be something that's only for the few actually immersive can be for the yeah. many and this is where 5g i mean we're doing a lot of it now and 5g is going to speed it up and enable a lot more people to be connected Mm. to those experiences at the same time. It means that real-time rendering is possible. But I don't think we'll feel like it's uh, such a physical step. Mm. 
yeah. it actually will seem like a seamless progression because we've experienced so much of it already and it'll just become more prevalent as since the production costs are coming down, since it's so easy to be able to do more of this so more brands are enabling it, so more consumers are experiencing it. Uh, and that's so, so refreshing in a way. We always think about these things of you know, the year of AR, suddenly everyone mm-hmm. is going to wake up one morning and want to do these things and get the kit to do it. And the whole behavior is going to shift. But this idea that it's just been creeping in and we'd be getting used to it is just a far mm-hmm. more sensible way to, to think about it. I love it. Um, Monica, we've run out of time, but that was absolutely brilliant. I mean, there's so much to un- to unpack in there. I sort of want to say that 2021 is going to be the year of the hologram maybe if we sort of twist it and cut it a little bit we could have we could have you we could have you saying that from the thing but as I (laughs) said I love the thing about the wish list and the basket becoming um that new middle bit of the funnel I mean there's just so much good stuff in there thank you so much for giving us 20 minutes and for for supporting all that we're doing uh in econ week no problem thank you so much for having me it was it was interesting to talk through all of this with you the IAB UK podcast Monica Majumda from Verizon Media there. I really enjoyed that. I, I love the point uh, around wish lists and baskets. And of course, frankly, anything on QR codes is always going to pique my interest. Uh, if you want to catch up on any of the content from e-commerce week, you can find it all at iabuk.com. That includes our Real Living 2021 research launch, the debate on whether innovations in e-com go far enough or have gone too far, and of course, the creative effectiveness workshop. And all of this made possible by e-commerce week sponsors, TikTok. We've got some brilliant guests and topics lined up on the podcast. But if you want to listen to the 40 or so episodes we've recorded since the first lockdown last year, you can find them on our site too, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks very much for listening. IAB UK, building a sustainable future for digital advertising.